the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Homes, cars, collectibles, you have sophisticated needs when it comes to insurance. So make sure you get bespoke insurance cover. Elite Risk Acceptances has you covered. Part of the old mutual group of companies, they are backed by over 180 years of insurance expertise. Visit eliterisk.co.za to find out more. Welcome to episode 18 of Magic Markets. It's our coming of age episode. And as a number of our listeners would hopefully have noticed by now, it's a very exciting week for us because Mo and I decided that, you know, Magic Markets has, has gone really well so far. And we're very excited about what the future holds for this thing. And it deserves to be a standalone brand as a collaboration between the Finance Ghost and Mo Knows. And with that is this wonderful new podcast artwork, which we really are stoked about. I've managed to convince Mo, Mr. GQ Best Dressed himself, to become a cartoon. It took a little bit of prodding, but uh, here we are today. I've cartoonized him, if that's even a word. And, and Mo, what a dashing cartoon you make. Yeah, I was. the truth is, Ghost, and the listeners need to know this. I, I was just jealous that you got your cartoon avatar by yourself, and I wanted to get in on that action. So so that's the reason why. And not disappointing on all the abuse that you give me about the whole GQ best dressed. Uh, you know, our cartoon avatar now has a, a, a very dapper-looking suit, if I say so myself, uh, and a whimsical bow tie. So we hope you guys enjoy it. We are not currently in the process of offering any non-fungible tokens on this artwork, but it's something that we could consider in future. <laughs> Followed up by a blue hoodie, which, you know, was a question from a few listeners of why aren't you wearing your blue hoodie? And I explained that was for after hours. And this is a serious podcast where you, you know, are looking, looking dapper for the markets. These non-fungible tokens are quite frightening. And any of our listeners who have a strong stomach, uh, Mo and I were just talking off air now. I either made the mistake or, or shocked myself, whatever you want to call it, of Googling the underlying images inside that Beeple artwork that sold for, I think it was $69 million dollars. And uh, yeah, don't don't let your kids see the screen. Go Google that thing and, and see what you think about some of the craziness in the world right now. But anyway, moving on from that and this world of digital art, which is something that Mo and I don't fully understand. I personally prefer to have something I can look at, something on the wall or something in my garage, something that our sponsors Elite Risk would want to actually insure, you know, as opposed to something that sits on a blockchain that I can't even look at. But uh, Mo, you seem to feel the same about uh, this digital art that we're seeing. Yeah, you know, art as an alternative asset class or investment class, it's, it's as old as the hills. I just like my art on a wall where I can see it. It, it gives me some utility. So, it's, you know, you could, a lot of people look at their, their jewelry as an alternative investment or you look at your art as an alternative investment. And each of those gives you some sort of utility. Uh, for me right now, still trying to figure out what the utility is of a, a bunch of... Uh, of uh, cryptographic uh, data that floats around the net and that I can't quite float on uh, or, or mount on my wall. You can't. And, and anyone who's interested in this space, go and Google the crypto kitties that marked the, the sort of end of the 2017 Bitcoin tulips phase one. 
you know, when it didn't have institutional acceptance, it ran really hard and crypto kitties became a thin on the Ethereum network of everyone paying big money for these digital cats uh, that were running around on a blockchain and, and really proved to be a test of Ethereum. But stranger things have happened. We have ships blocking the Suez Canal. We have uh, incredibly expensive artworks on the blockchain. So there's never a dull moment in the world. And Mo, that's part of what makes the markets so exciting and so interesting. There's always stuff going on. And we thought we'd take stock tonight as a sort of coming-of-age show of just talking through some of the thinking that we both apply in our portfolios, in our wealth creation strategies, nothing specific, just a few questions that we'll ask each other around how we think about the world in our portfolios. So I'll go first, Mo. And what I wanted to ask you is, when you look at a stock investment, what is your ideal holding period? Do you do a bit of swing trading? Do you have a longer term view? Does it vary? How do you think about this? I think it's a great question because, you know, goes to, I always talk about this because the psychology behind one's investment and trading uh, is very different. Uh, I tend to manage different pots of money. So I would have a long only portfolio and, and we can maybe talk a little bit about that. I then also for a portion of my overall portfolio do have a shorter term, a trading portfolio that can take on a little bit more risk that I can throw leverage into and all kinds of fancy stuff. And that goes into a smaller portion of my overall portfolio. But let's first go into the long only portfolio. When you're looking at investment, this is really the difference between investment and trading for me, is when you look at investment, your time horizon at a minimum should be three to five years with a default on the five years. Uh, I will almost go so far as to say longer than that. Uh, on social media, I'm always hammering on the phrase that I say investment or investing and markets in general is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that really applies to anyone who's looking at building over the longer term sustainable wealth. Remember, when, when you look at large, dynastic, successful families, they're not planning for tomorrow or next week or next year, whatever, next quarter, which the world has gotten caught up in this, quarterly reporting all of a sudden, and you, you check your portfolio every single day or multiple times a day. Those families that really successfully create wealth over the longer period of time do so with a multi-generational time frame in mind. And that's what I would like to say is that if you can afford to have a multi-generational time frame, that's the ideal, but most people can't. So then at the absolute minimum, you're looking around three to five years. Uh, then for the smaller portion of my portfolio, the, the slightly more, uh, let's call it aggressive, exciting portion, the trading portion of the portfolio, in there I apply a variety of strategies. And there the holding period, uh, I've experimented. So that's probably the more experimental component of the portfolio. I've experimented with, with intraday uh, trading time horizons where your holding period can, can vary from a few minutes to a day to a week. You know? So that's, that's at the extreme short end. Uh, similarly, there I've, exper I, I've experimented with swing trading. So there you might have an idea where you say, okay, this looks like an idea either on you know, technical or events basis. I would expect a stock to do this. And then you take that position and that requires a little bit more patience, a little bit more, uh, I call it temerity. And it's very much a spectrum because at the one end of the spectrum, you have very little tolerance for holding period risk. That's at the one minute spectrum. And then as you migrate that, your risk tolerance for holding a position needs to actually migrate. And that's why at the other end of the spectrum, on the investment side of the spectrum, you really have to have a long-term time horizon and the ability to be able to withstand market corrections. 
you know, I, I'm curious. If, if I even throw the same question back at you, you know, h- how do you manage your money? Do you have a, a, a single pot of money? Uh, do you apply a similar kind of methodology? Are you very much cut and dried in the investment mold? Uh, and what informs that for you? So what, what drove you to that choice? I think that's a step further from the question you asked me is why do you do it the way you do it? Yeah, so the way I do it's probably simpler than that. And that's maybe because I got into the markets a lot more recently than you did. So for years, while the JSC was kind of half asleep and fractional share ownership wasn't really a reality, it was much more expensive to build a diversified portfolio. I was very focused on just paying down literally my bond. So, you know, I was taking the risk-free uh, yield return of just paying your mortgage down faster. So it was really with the crash last year that I said, okay, this if this isn't an entry point, then I don't know what is. And I basically took the years of saving bonuses and everything else into my bond and tossed it straight into the market, which was obviously really risky. But, you know, it, it is what it is. I looked at it and thought, okay, we're either going to end up all living off, you know, vegetables that we grow in our garden or at some point the world's going to come right. So, you know, that was my YOLO trade, if I may. So I don't have different pots, if I can call it that. I've kind of got one portfolio that I that I run. And generally speaking, I'm taking longer term views on stuff. I've sold very little. Uh, the only thing I've really sold was I sold down in MassMart around December. Uh, and you'll recall we did a show about sort of portfolio positioning for 2021. And MassMart's actually done well since then. So I could have let it go or let it run. And then I sold out of Sassel, which was another mistake. Uh, and then I bought gold, which was an excellent double whammy of precisely how not to do it. But you can't get it all right. Um, but the point is it's, it's more about building a long-term diversified portfolio. I always think to myself, you know, I want to leave this to baby ghost one day. So what should I be buying that, you know, one day will help him go to university, become whatever he can become. That's the kind of mindset that I go in with. Obviously within that context though, there are special situations and, you know, if you can jump in. And then out of something, when it when it turns quickly, then I would. But it's it's not something I've executed before. I've just jumped in, and and where stuff has gone the way I wanted it to, I've kind of left it to run. So I don't have like target, you know, exit prices and try and get out the following week. I haven't used any leverage. It's quite a simple portfolio, actually. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important. And I mean, you know, I want I want to leverage off that one point that you made because you know I've kind of gone through this journey over a series of of, of a long period of time, and. I think it's very important for investors to demarcate, at least mentally, in their heads, or, or rather keep a discipline in terms of not allowing a style creep. So if, for example, you are looking at speculative plays where you want to pick something that swings around, that, that's exactly the reason why I carved out a portion of my portfolio to do that stuff in. And I only do that with a, a really a, a much smaller portion of my portfolio simply because I can't afford for that to mess around with a longer term strategy. But related to that, I actually want to pick your brain about something because I'm not quite decided on this. I know my approach has been that I diversify fairly widely. I want to make sure that I get exposure to the macro trends that I believe are going to be driving the bigger picture. And then within those macro trends, I try and diversify quite a bit. But there is a school of thought out there that says that diversification is actually a lack of conviction and that concentrated positions are really the way to go about building your wealth. Now that swings it both ways, is that if you're looking at it with a risk lens on concentrated positions can be the death of you in a portfolio. What is your approach, Ghost, in terms of how you view diversification versus concentrated positions? It's a funny question because I ask myself this quite often. <laughs> and I think when I originally built the portfolio, I went for more 
high conviction, at least themes, not always high conviction stocks, but certainly high conviction themes. And then over time, I've kind of gone the route of, you know, should I own resources? You know, should I have crypto in there? Should I have gold in there? And to be honest, it's definitely uh, blunted the performance of the portfolio. But given the recent sell-off and everything else that's gone on, it's held its own very well. So I almost feel like I've turned it into a balanced fund. And I'm not sure that was what I really wanted to do at my age. But it's also not the end of the world. You know, it doesn't help to throw money into what is almost certainly the top of a cycle just for the sake of it. So again, with the kind of 10-year view, you know, it's not the end of the world that I've gone and bought stuff that I believe, number one, it's a hedge, you know, like the commodities type stuff, it's something different. But I do also have a view that at some point we do a commodities super cycle, it has to happen. And if that happens, I want to be there for that. And they're paying great dividends at the moment and everything else. Like I topped up today on Sabanye um, because it's down about 15% in the last month or so. So I did a bit of, of payday front running. It's something we can talk about just now. But uh, yeah, that's how <laughs> I've been thinking about it. I, I would probably like to get back to more high conviction stuff because some sectors I just don't like and I'm okay to not have exposure to them. You know, I've debated the MTN point on Twitter a few times and, and the people who have bought into MTN recently have done well. But I just look at the longer term picture and I go, okay, you know, this entire thing is predicated on whether or not I as an MTN customer will be quite happy for them to sell me every type of financial product in my life. And the answer is probably not. So would I buy into it? No. Whereas gaming and esports, I'm like so convinced that it's a great theme. Tencent just released another cracking set of results. But the stock so, was down, which is amazing. So there's an opportunity, right? I think the stock's down 5% today as we're recording. I was watching that closely as well because, you know, I have an exposure not just to Tencent, but also to a gaming company that Tencent invests in, which is called Huya. We've spoken a bit about it on the show as well. And, you know, on the back of still stellar results, I guess just general market risk off is pressuring that there have been some regulatory changes in China, which are hitting those names specifically, uh, potentially a partnership in terms of data sharing between the government and these entities. Uh, and I think that's really what's taken a little bit of the shine of those particular stocks. But the mega trend you're talking about, gaming, I think is an absolute winner. And that's where the investing versus trading differential comes about. Is if you're trading, you're terrified. It's a 5% knock on the stock on a day. If you're investing, it doesn't really matter in the longer term. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that longer term lens is why I remain nervous of the Chinese super companies. And I own shares in Alibaba, which has not been good for me. Um, and I have a lot of indirect exposure to Tencent, uh, not really through NASPAS and Process, but I think it's in that fun ec vector gaming ETF that I, I do have a lot of exposure into. So, yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit risky on that side of the world. I mean, and sometimes you can find similar growth stories somewhere else. I mean, anecdotally, I did a little bit of research the other day into international e-commerce platforms. And if you have a look at their revenue multiples relative to their revenue growth, Alibaba is trading on a pretty similar sort of justified multiple, so taking the multiple and linking it to growth, to the South American giant Mercado Libre. And, you know, only one of those companies is currently getting smacked by its government, at least to my knowledge. So it's interesting, you know, those are the sort of, let's say you like the e-commerce thesis, you could say to yourself, okay, well, I like that story, I'm worried about Alibaba, Actually, on the other side of the world, in South America, there's this really interesting company. And once you look at its growth relative to its multiple, it's, the valuation is not too different. I mean, for the benefit of the listeners, the company you're talking about is Mercado Libre. 
uh, which is effectively the Amazon of South America. Like Alibaba is the Amazon of Asia. And, you know, you, I think we're talking about this off air. You're getting exposure to a theme, which is the e-commerce theme and how much are you paying for that. But then there's also another lens, which I then look at from a macro perspective, saying, which geographies do you want exposure to? So, for example, as a South African investor, you're potentially predisposed to a lot of Chinese exposure, given the resources link. There's the Naspers process link, which is a direct link into Tencent, for example. Uh, but there's very little tie-in between South Africa and South America or LATAM. Uh, and Latam is a very large market, uh, not without its own challenges. You know, they have political issues there. I think Brazil is currently one of the hardest hit emerging markets uh, from a COVID perspective. And so that is where I then apply my macro emerging markets lens to say, what kind of geographic exposures do I want? Um, I want I want to kind of link to that point and say, you know, when it comes to risk management, there's one thing in terms of looking at this when you're allocating money within your portfolio. But we all know there's this old saying that, you know, stocks climb the stairs on the way up and then take the elevator down. I mean, lots of talk out there about the market being really quite elevated. I think from the first time we spoke about it on this podcast and I wrote about it on monos.com as well, markets have kind of gone sideways. I think, you know, the S&P was down a week and then up another week and they have, they look as though they're topping out. Now it's either going to shoot upward or it's going to shoot downward. And I don't know, Ghost, if you've ever applied, you know, short positions in your portfolio. How do you view short positions? And maybe you go first, and then I, I can share my journey with the listeners as well. Yeah, so I have never shorted a share. And the reason for that is, one, I feel like I would need to watch the markets incredibly closely, which is not something I'm just practically able to do as much as I would like. So that's the one reason. And the second reason is because I have the long-term lens. As much as, yes, it's appealing to, you know, take the short-term profit. I mean, I would have shorted Tesla for the past six months and I would have been killed along the way. And I still absolutely stand by my view on that thing, but it would have, it would have murdered me. And Capitec is the same story. Once again, I'm absolutely convinced Capitec is overvalued. But uh, as the old saying goes, you know, the markets can remain irrational for longer than you can remain solvent. And it's the truest words ever spoken. So I look at examples like that and I go, okay, i rather just avoid the companies that I believe are overvalued as opposed to trying to actually, you know, shoot them out of the tree to use a, a saying that, that, you know, a colleague of mine in the investment space used with me a few weeks ago. So yeah, I personally don't. Um, I, it's not that I'm completely against it. I just think practically for my portfolio, it just doesn't really work with what I'm trying to do uh, long term. However, you, I know from discussions off air are not shy to uh, have a bit of a short, are you? Uh, you, you know what? So first of all, I know why you don't short stuff. It's because you're actually scared that the Reddit guys are going to find you and they're going to pull a GameStop on you, <laughs> which we spoke about in a preceding show. But, you know, it, my relationship with, with short positions is, is a long, long-term one. I mean, I think the very first time I experimented with that was probably about 15 years ago. And... Uh, it psychologically is very different because there's this asymmetry. And I think we've discussed it on the show before, but it's, it's still worth mentioning again. And the asymmetry is that if you buy a stock, you, let's say you spend $100 and you buy a stock, and that stock goes down to zero. That's the limit of your exposure. You lose your $100. If you short a stock at $100, your loss is potentially infinite because the stock can go to 200 or 300, and then you just have to keep on chipping in or find the stock to close out your short position. So shorting comes with a very different mentality. The risk 
symmetries are, are, are not aligned. There is no symmetry. You have potentially infinite losses with limited gains to the downside. And that's the complete inverse of a, of a long position. So I have in the, in the more volatile portion of my portfolio, in the trading portfolio, that's where I put in my short positions. And I mean, we can talk about successes and mistakes and so forth. But last year, probably one of my most costly decisions was a short position. And, you know, listeners are going to laugh, but there was a time when I looked at Amazon and I said, geez, this thing's really looking quite expensive and it's, it's run up. And I took a short position on Amazon and it hurt and then it hurt a little bit more. And I guess the lesson I learned was that, you know, A, be disciplined. So I had a stop loss in mind. And when I hit my stop loss, I actually took the pain and I got out. And guess what? That worked for me. So it worked because Amazon continued to ride its way up. I reassessed my entire investment thesis around how I viewed the company. And lo and behold, you can come to very different conclusions. But that was a short journey that I experienced as recently as last year. What I have also started doing is when I'm nervous about the market, when I'm nervous about some downside, instead of taking an outright short position, I've started using options. Now, I know a lot of retail investors in South Africa think, oh, options, very complex. And the fact of the matter is options have actually been around in the South African market for a very long time. And when I was just starting out, I was just fresh out of varsity. They used to trade in South Africa under the name warrants. So you'd go in the back of the newspapers and you'd look there and there was a warrants section. And warrants were basically retail optionality, calls and puts and so forth. And, you know, I know the banks made a ton of money out of them because later on when I worked for a bank, you saw what the institutional pricing was versus the retail pricing. And hey, presto, you realize why they were in that business in the first place. But one of my ex-colleagues once said to me, there are two types of traders in the market. Those who have lost money on warrants and those who will lose money on warrants. <laughs> <laughs> so very true. But here's the interesting thing is recently with this whole democratization of finance, options trading has actually entered the realm of retail investment in a very big way. And there are a number of providers. I mean, I know there are a couple that operate down there as well, but up here we speak a lot about Robinhood. And 60% of Robinhood's revenues are related to options trading. Now, I'm not an aggressive trader. I'm not going to go out and, and buy heavily, heavily leveraged call options on a name I think is going to pump up over the next two days. I use options, I guess, the way they were intended is that it's an insurance policy. So I look at it in the context of my wider portfolio. I know I'm long certain stocks. And I then say, if I'm nervous about where this market is going, instead of taking an outright short position, for example, on the S&P 500, when this thing can ratchet up another 10 or 15%, I will go and I will buy not very short dated options. I buy slightly longer dated options in a trading context and I'll buy put spreads. And that's me buying insurance. Now, it means that I pay premium on day one. That money's gone. But what it does mean is that if the market's correct, I will be protected for a portion of that downside. And I set the levels in terms of how much of a correction I expect to see over that time period. And if I'm wrong, if my view is wrong, my losses are limited to the premium that I've paid. And that helps me address the asymmetry that I would have been experiencing under a naked short position. Yeah, and that literally is just a hedge. Whereas the call option strategy is being followed by the retail investors, basically sports betting on the market. It's literally- Red or black. It really is. It's literally, well, I've got $100. The government gave it to me. And let me toss it in. You know, worst case scenario in the States, I don't buy burgers for the next two weeks. Best case scenario, I, you know- 
take uh, take my significant other out for a weekend away. And and I, that's the mentality. And that's what's driving this crazy market. And obviously it's not sustainable forever, but I mean, that is that is the way it works. The one thing that you mentioned there was Amazon. And I've done a deep, well, a relatively deep dive before into the, what I call FAM, because it's, you know, you've got to add Microsoft in there. And I can understand how you came to that conclusion because on a fundamental level, Amazon's multiples are expensive. Like if you said to me, which one of those would I just buy and put in my drawer for the rest of time to give to baby ghost when he turns 21? The answer is Microsoft. Simple as that, no hesitation. And Apple, you know, if I had to choose two, it would be those two. But the problem is that to make money from a short, and this is probably the last thing we have time for this point, is to make money from a short, a share price has to go down, not sideways, not slowly up, not underperform its peers, it actually has to drop. And in this market of currency uh, of you know currency debasement and free money and stimmy and all of this stuff, the when it drops, it's going to drop hard for sure. And if you are right place, right time, you'll make big bucks. But it's not going to gently drop, I don't think. You know, and and that's where it gets dangerous with shorting. And that's why I rather go with like an underweight, overweight strategy, avoid what I think is overvalued go higher on, on the stuff that I think is undervalued and over time then try and build a nice even portfolio instead. Yeah, I think that's 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 spot on is that, you know, part of what we're trying to communicate to listeners in the show as well is that it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of environment. We're not saying, here's an answer, here's a formula, it works. It's about a journey of learning. Uh, and at the end of the day, you've got to be consistent at that. Uh, there'll be lessons that you learn and forget and relearn. Uh, and that's happened to me over the course of 15 years. I found myself making mistakes that I'd actually made very early on in my journey as well. Because, again, investment is a discipline. It's like people who get out on the road early, five in the morning, and they run and they train. That's really what this is about. So I think it's about education. It's sharing some of our our learnings, uh, our techniques. And it might work for some of you. It might not work for some of you. But the critical point is this is not financial advice. This is just us sharing our journey, uh, where we're going with it. Uh, and it evolves over time. It evolves for each and every person. Your journey will be unique and your journey will be defined by your own headspace. And as a final point before we go, because uh, we are out of time, I just want to note to listeners that after the dot-com crash on the NASDAQ, which I think was in 2001, it took until around 2015 for the NASDAQ to get back to those levels. So stonks and stocks do not always go up. And... There has to be some common sense. And I'm not suggesting we're in a dot-com bubble. The world is very different now to what it was then in terms of the understanding of tech. But the point is that, you know, it doesn't hurt to sometimes just play the long game. You might see people making fabulous profits while you kind of sit sideways for a while, but stick with your conviction because if they get in at the top and then things go badly, it takes a very long time to get back to where they got in, essentially. So, Mo, that is all we have time for with episode 18. How's that? Of uh, Magic Markets. And we'll do it again uh, next week when we are officially 19, which was an exciting time in my life. I'm sure it was for you too. And uh, we can reminisce. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, remember, listeners, give us a great rating, subscribe on the platform of your choice, and look us up on Twitter and let us know what you think about our, our fantastic new cover art. I, I certainly like it quite a bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Mo. Thank you to our listeners, and we will chat to you next week. Homes, cars, collectibles, you have sophisticated needs when it comes to insurance. So make sure you get bespoke insurance cover. Elite Risk Acceptances has you covered. 
Part of the old mutual group of companies, they are backed by over 180 years of insurance expertise. Visit eliterisk.co.za to find out more. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.